Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 203, The Shakedown. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. You can see more of the Knitting Out Loud catalog at www.knittingoutloud.com. And Knit Circus Magazine, the online magazine featuring three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. Please visit www.knitcircus.com to see their current issue. Also, Holiday Vacations and Craftlet take you on the road to Rhinebeck. We are still getting orders. Uh, please, please, please visit craftlit.com. Click on the link in the upper right-hand corner that says Road to Rhinebeck and has the lovely autumnal landscape on it so that you can find out more about the trip. Uh, one of the things you should know is, I think I mentioned this last time, uh, once you put a deposit down, it locks the price of your ticket. That means if fuel charges go up, which they apparently are going to be doing for a while yet, you will not find yourself charged any more than, uh, than what the price is right now. So you will lock in that price, and that can only be a good thing for you right now. Uh, and again, if you cannot go on the trip and you find that out before the deadline, you will get your deposit back. So no risk here kind of thing. Not a lot to tell you about before we get on with the book, because I have two chapters. You absolutely will not forgive me if I leave you hanging, so I am smashing two chapters together. Once again, I am going to have to read in my kind of sad British-slash-Australian accent, because uh, once again, we have a reader who can't pronounce Catherick, and I just, I can't do that to you. It's it's just a little painful. Not that she's mentioned a lot in this chapter, just that she's mentioned it all, and it's a little too much. So there's that. However, before I get to the book, I did want to let you know why I'm calling this The Shake-Up. Last night, one of our listeners, Ariel, and Aaron Ziegler of Chop Bard, and yours truly, we all got on Skype and recorded with each other because we have been cooking up something fun for you. As you probably know, Aaron does with Shakespeare what we do with great literature that is not Shakespeare, everything that's left over after you remove Shakespeare. And he's really good with Shakespeare, but uh, we were also talking back and forth for a while about teaching Shakespeare and how much of a challenge that can be, and that, wow, maybe we should have a round table with a dramaturg. I'll explain that in a minute. And uh, Ariel happens to be a dramaturg, so we all got together talking about teaching Shakespeare, but then it all kind of became a freewheeling discussion about Shakespeare and literature and life, the way Shakespeare is. You know, it's kind of like you start with a very basic plot, you know, two star-crossed lovers, big whoop, and then it becomes Romeo and Juliet when you let Shakespeare loose on it. Well, we had a really great time talking, and we're both editing down the audio. Aaron will be taking the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern section, and I will be playing with everything else. And this will be a special Craftlet episode. It's a crossover episode. So the audio that I put out on the Craftlet stream will be kind of the hodgepodge of things that we talked about that aren't Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. And Aaron will be putting out on the Chop Bard stream everything we talked about 
about Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, plus some stuff. There will be some overlap, I imagine, but it's an experiment. And part of this experiment is that we hope that those of you who listen, especially those of you who are teachers, will write in to either of us with questions that we can then focus on on the next round table. The, the teaching of Shakespeare is rather tricky. Building context for it can be quite a challenge. And, uh, and we just thought that teachers really needed a leg up, not just with the stuff that Aaron does of breaking the, the, the text down scene by scene and act by act, but, but also actually conceptualizing, you know, how can you get kids into Shakespeare? We haven't exactly come up with a name yet. <laughs> so right now, I'm just saying the shakeup. That is actually not one of the names that we'd come up with. But for our intents and purposes here, that's what I called this episode. I'm also calling it the shakeup because all sorts of important things are happening at Blackwater Park. But before we get to Blackwater, there were a couple of things that I wanted to tell you about. Uh, one is very sad. Uh, we have to find a home for our dogs. It looks like where we're going to in Virginia is very small. And our dogs are medium-sized, but they are used to having an acre of land that they can tear around on. They're used to having a dog door. And it's really... Uh, as much as it breaks our heart, we just keep thinking it's not fair to the dogs to put them in a very small apartment in Virginia and we're hoping maybe we can find someone with a farm or a big yard or kids who are near Arizona. If we could find some place near-ish, especially a family, the dogs just love love their boys and they're such good dogs buddies. You know, they're good together. We're hoping to keep them together. Anyway, we've put signs up in and around Tucson and um, and my friend Meg, who is also a designer on Madame Defarge, she said, you know, you should put the word out to the podcast people because you never know. Somebody may be looking for a dog or two wonderful dogs. So just a reminder, uh, Rosie, Rosie the Wonder Dog, is Black Lab with a little bit of chow, but she doesn't have any of the unfortunate chow behavioral issues. She's very loyal, uh, but that's about it. And then Amber, the light brown dog, is a Shiba Inu, we think, Japanese dog. She looks like an overgrown corgi or a very small, I don't know, she doesn't look like a German Shepherd, but she's a kind of, I guess, body shape, but not face. She looks like a seal, actually, is what she looks like. So that's, that's kind of a sad announcement. And, you know, email me at heather at craftlit.com if you're at all interested. Or if you know someone who you think might be interested, uh, feel free to give them my, my email. The, um, oh, and the dogs are, what, two and a half? Almost three. No, 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 that's not true. They are three. They're closing in on three and a half. So they're, they're pretty young, but they are not puppies. They are dogs. They sleep a lot. Um, the other thing is um, selling things. I will have a link on the show notes to all of the things that I am destashing. That is a ton of knitting magazines from over the years, all of my spin-off magazines, and that includes my journey wheel, my baby Mac loom, which is a small collapsible floor loom. So it's a, a four heddle floor loom, six treadles. It's an add a harness so you could add two more harnesses, two more heddles to it. That one I'm getting rid of. 
we're just not going to be able to have room for all of this stuff. Uh, a bunch of fiber and... Oh, there's more stuff. There's a link to it on the show notes. Uh, I have a page up with, with pictures of everything. So that's going. And then I also have a link to the trip site. You will see a picture in the sidebar of the show notes that looks like the open highway. And that will take you to a road trip page where I have put our general itinerary. Very general. But it has dates on it now. And it shows you kind of basically where we're going. So if you're in... Let me make sure I get this right... Arizona, anywhere between here and Flagstaff. Utah, going straight up the western side into Provo, up Provo Canyon into Heber City. And then from Heber up to uh, Yellowstone. And then from Yellowstone over to Devil's Tower and Deadwood. And then from Deadwood across to Sioux Falls. From Sioux Falls up to Minneapolis-St. Paul. I'll probably also be visiting Eau Claire, Wisconsin. I hope to see Daisy at Yellow Dog Knitting. And then uh, down to Evanston, we'll have a party in Evanston one night at a restaurant yet to be determined, where I hope uh, a lot of my Chicago people can can make it up on the train. We'll make sure that it's close to the train stop at, uh, at Dempster. And uh, I'm going to try and get into a couple of yarn stores in Chicago, and then uh, over to Indiana, and then over to Ohio, and then we're going to make a beeline down to... Virginia in time to see the Indigo Girls on June 12th at Wolf Trap with the boys. That'll be how we celebrate Thing One's birthday. He will be turning 11. For those of you who have been listening to this podcast for a long time, um, he's going to be 11. He's reading Into Thin Air by John Krakauer. This is the boy who couldn't read when I started the podcast. So there's hope for all of us out there. Uh, let's see. Oh, uh, Shannon Oakey of Cooperative Press, and Cooperative Press is who is publishing the Madame Defarge book. Uh, she has started a Kickstarter campaign. If you've gone and checked out her website, you know that as an independent publisher, uh, she is trying to make sure that people, especially in the creative world, have access to all of the great ideas that are out there. Um, she's not out to make a million dollars. She's, uh, she splits proceeds with the authors. She is an incredibly generous publisher and, uh, and she's, you know, she's on our side and she's trying to raise some capital so that she can pay more people up front. Like with the Madame Defarge book, none of us have gotten paid and none of us will get paid until, um, until the book is, is in your hands and is, is selling. And, uh, and then, we hope we get uh, paid for the work that we did. Uh, Shannon would like to be able to uh, turn that around a little bit. And so you can get a link to her Kickstarter campaign video from the show notes at craftlet.com. Along the same lines, I am releasing my very first free ebook. I talked about this a thousand years ago, and it's just taken me a long time to get it done. But I have successfully gotten it into the hands of one of our listeners, and she has successfully knit a sock. It's a very simple little sock book. It has links in it to online tutorials and information pages. It is free. You can download it from the show notes, and it's the first of a series. This this first one, which is just how to knit socks in general, this one's free. And then uh, the heel class that I taught at 
Sock Summit. I'm taking the notes from that and I'm creating individual, smaller ebooks that basically teach you exactly what I taught in the class. Now, I can still teach this class. I can teach this class going across the country. Uh, if anybody wants their local yarn store to hook up with me, that's great. But in the event that you aren't on my trajectory across the country, you will at least be able to get the information and the worksheets and all of that for doing all of the various sock heels so that you can find the heel that fits you best. And, uh, and those, the heel books, will actually be on sale on the Craftlet site shortly. This first one took the most time and, uh, and you'll see why. It's extensive and it, it has step-by-step -step instructions and the writing sounds like me, <laughs> so you'll, you'll hear me in your head. Um, but that's going to be on the show notes for you as well. And the last thing I wanted to announce is I got a call today. It was a very interesting call from a textbook company. Now, this is someone who I've been on their, um, their newsletter list for a long time. They're called Flat World Knowledge. And I don't know how I got on their list, but I did. And I've always thought their emails were really interesting. Well, I got a call today from uh, one of the owners who was calling to see if I had chosen my textbooks for the fall semester at the university. And I said, well, I'm moving and I'm not going to be at the university. And so, no, I haven't done that. But, but I've been reading your emails and I'm really interested about what you're doing. Because what they're doing is they're kind of, um, how do you say this? Their whole mission is to provide textbooks for college students, at least now. I think they're also branching into high school, but definitely college textbooks, because they're so appalled that college textbooks are like $200 a pop. They are providing textbooks online free. They are also providing textbooks online for professors in such a way that if, say, I were teaching a rhetoric class, but I had a particular lesson or chapter or section that I really wanted to focus on logical fallacies. I could go into that textbook, I could click on the page where I wanted to insert my logical fallacies section just for me, just for my classes. And I could actually insert text into the textbook so that what the students wind up with is a unified textbook electronically. How cool is that? I mean, this is really taking that whole Creative Commons thing to the, the point where we were all hoping it would kind of go. So I'm very excited about them. I have a link to their website, Flat World Knowledge. If you're a college professor or if your child is about to go to college, it's something to alert them to so that they know to look for it and to maybe even ask their professors, have you looked into this? Because it would be really nice not to have to pay 200 bucks for a college textbook. So I think, I think that's pretty much it. Now we can get back to the woman in white and all of the happenings at Blackwater Park. When last we left Marion and poor Laura, things were starting to brew, or things had been bubbling for a while and now we're coming to a boil with Percival. And, uh, and poor Laura is going to be asked to sign some kind of document. We don't know what that document is. I mean, we have our suspicions, but we don't really know for certain. Well, today you're going to find out much more about that. And you're going to find out quite a bit more about Count Fosco and his wife.
There are a few things I wanted to give you definitions for because there's some colloquial language in this one, and I just wanted to make sure that you uh, understood what uh, what this stuff was. I had to go look this all up. So uh, the first one is wafers. When they talk about uh, a legal contract having wafers on it, evidently it used to be that contract was considered binding if it had a seal on it and the seal identified where the contract was drawn up and signed and in the 19th century the use of wax seals the kind you know where you drip wax on the paper and then you press a ring or a stamp or something three-dimensional into the wax um, that was still proper and and allowed but you could also take embossed paper almost like a sticker, like those golden, golden, round golden stickers with the frayed edges. Um, if they embossed one of those, you could stick it on the contract and that would identify where the contract was drawn up and the fact that it was actually legal and binding. So you'll hear something about wafers being on this contract and that's what they're talking about is these little embossed pieces of paper. I don't know if they're gold or not, but they're embossed pieces of paper, not wax seals. John Bull, B-U-L-L, is Uncle Sam for England. So when we here in the United States talk about Uncle Sam, who is kind of the personification of the United States, an older gentleman wearing red, white, and blue, striped trousers, big beard, I want you, that whole thing. John Bull is the personification of England, not Scotland and Ireland. This is just England country. And you're going to hear a reference to an attitude taken by John Bull. And again, it's, it's talking about the attitude of, uh, of personified England. So that's another thing. I would like you to consider, and I, I, I don't, I don't, by the time we're done with the book, you may disagree with me or, or have an argument against this, but it's just something that's been sitting in my mind. And I'm going to throw it out there. And that is watch Lady Fosco, especially in today's two chapters, and let the term Stockholm Syndrome roll around in your head. I don't know if I'm right. I think I might be, but I'm, I'm not sure. So consider the possibility and, you know, add comments to the show notes and, uh, and let's see what people come up with. For those of you who don't know what Stockholm Syndrome is, and those of you who are young may not, but in August 1973, there was a bank robbery, I think, in Stockholm. And the employees who were held hostage by the bank robbers, uh, it took quite a few days. It was, what, August 23rd to August 28th. They went through this six-day ordeal and wound up becoming quite attached to their captors and, in fact, testified for them, I think. Uh, you know, pro-bank robbers. This has happened. Um, the FBI thinks 27% of people who go through something like this, some sort of you know, kidnapping or, or hostage-taking thing, uh, wind up identifying with their captors positively. And there are all sorts of really important reasons for why that might happen. And... Uh, I know that in least in at least in one case that I read about, it did not end well for the hostage who identified with a captor who was then uh, executed by the state for for his crime. It's a very complicated thing to try to understand, but it's real. 
You know, I mean, it, it, I mean, it's real in that it's documented and it seems to happen. Um, again, not all the time, but o- over a quarter of the time, according to the the Federal Bureau of Investigation. So it's just sticking in my craw. So I thought I'd throw it out there and see what you guys think. I think that is all the really important stuff. Oh, uh, Jasper Ford's new book, One of Our Thursdays is Missing, mentions Flatland, uh, Anne Catherick figures in the book, Jane Eyre, as usual. I'm, I'm just absolutely blown away because not only is Mr. Ford a genius, and you have to trust the first 30 pages of this new book, just go with it, because it doesn't start like the rest of them. Uh, but he, he loves books so much. And it just so thoroughly comes across in his books, especially his Thursday Next books. And, uh, and I, in my heart of hearts, I would like to believe that he trolled the Craftlet website <laughs> after I contacted him and, uh, and looked at the things that we'd read and then threw in references to them because it sure feels like he just opened up the Craftlet catalog and went for it. It's a wonderful book. And the, the jokes, the Flatland stuff is particularly wonderful. Um, it also feels like he already got a copy of What Would Adam Defarge Knit? Because there's a lot of stuff that's in that book as well. Um, like the Jane Eyre stuff. Anyway, fun. Love him. Love his books. And one of our travelers from the trip to London, Bath and Wales actually got to meet him at a book signing and said he was very nice. So that was great. Cindy, Cindy got to meet him and I'm so jealous. But I won't hold it against her because Cindy's really wonderful. So there it is. And the last little announcement, I totally forgot. I have an incentive for the month of April. This is a book. It's a soft cover book called The Elemental Journal, Composing Artful Expressions from Items Cast Aside. This book is by Tammy Kushner, and it's a fascinating book. It takes journaling to a very different, uh, it's a very different angle on journaling. And it's not exactly, you know, pick up trash as you walk down the street and turn it into something pretty, but it's not far from that. And so for those of us who look at everything as potential fodder for something in the future, she actually gives you ideas on how to use it. So instead of having just piles of stuff that you save, you can actually start to create art and take it and put it somewhere put it on etsy put it on your blog give it to friends you know anything but she has lovely ideas and i've been kind of inspired by all of this of course as i'm getting rid of everything i own you know i I can't be storing stuff but i like the book a lot and so uh i thought i would offer it as an incentive because i would like to share the wealth i had never seen this book before and totally came across it by accident so i wanted to pass that on to you and share it with you as well the elemental journal by tammy kushner and i will put a link to that in the show notes so you can see what it is again if you donate in the month of april 2011 you'll be put into a drawing for this all right, so today we have Epoch the second. We have sections four and five, and you get my goofy reading first, and then we're followed again by Ruth Golding. <laughs> I just will continue to suffer by comparison for posterity, and I'll I'll deal with that. I'll I'll live with that for you because at least I can pronounce Anne Catherick. So that's pretty much it. 
Here we go with The Women in White by Wilkie Collins. The Second Epoch, Part 4, June 17th. Just as my hand was on the door of my room, I heard Sir Percival's voice calling to me from below. I must beg you to come downstairs again, he said. It's Fosco's fault, Miss Halcombe, not mine. He has started some nonsensical objection to his wife being one of the witnesses and has obliged me to ask you to join us in the library. I entered the room immediately with Sir Percival. Laura was waiting by the writing table, twisting and turning her garden hat uneasily in her hands. Madame Fosco sat near her, in an armchair, imperturbably admiring her husband, who stood by himself at the other end of the library, picking off the dead leaves from the flowers in the window. The moment I appeared, the Count advanced to meet me and to offer his explanations. "'A thousand pardons, Miss Halcombe,' he said. "'You know the character which is given to my countrymen by the English?' We Italians are all wily and suspicious by nature in the estimation of the good John Bull. Set me down, if you please, as being no better than the rest of my race. I am a wily Italian and a suspicious Italian. You have thought so yourself, dear lady, have you not? Well, it is part of my wiliness and part of my suspicion to object to Madame Fosco being a witness to Lady Glyde's signature, which I am also a witness to myself." "'There is not the shadow of a reason for his objection,' interposed Sir Percival. "'I have explained to him that the law of England allows Madame Fosco to witness a signature as well as her husband.' "'I admit it,' resumed the Count. "'The law of England says yes, but the conscience of Fosco says no.' He spread out his fat fingers on the bosom of his blouse and bowed solemnly, as if he wished to introduce his conscience to us all in the character of an illustrious addition to the society.' "'What this document, which Lady Glyde is about to sign, may be,' he continued, "'I neither know nor desire to know. I only say this. "'Circumstances may happen in the future which may oblige Percival or his representatives "'to appeal to the two witnesses, in which case it is certainly desirable "'that those witnesses should represent two opinions which are perfectly independent the one of the other.' This cannot be if my wife signs as well as myself, because we have but one opinion between us, and that opinion is mine. I will not have it cast in my teeth at some future day that Madame Fosco acted under my coercion and was in plain fact no witness at all. I speak in Percival's interest when I propose that my name shall appear as the nearest friend of the husband, and your name, Miss Halcombe, as the nearest friend of the wife." I am a Jesuit, if you please to think so, a splitter of straws, a man of trifles and crochets and scruples. But you will humor me, I hope, in merciful consideration for my suspicious Italian character and my uneasy Italian conscience. He bowed again, stepped back a few paces, and withdrew his conscience from our society as politely as he had introduced it. The Count's scruples might have been honorable and reasonable enough, but there was something in his manner of expressing them which increased my unwillingness to be concerned in the business of this signature. No consideration of less importance than my consideration for Laura would have induced me to consent to be a witness at all. One look, however, at her anxious face decided me to risk anything rather than to desert her. "'I will readily remain in the room,' I said, "'and if I find no reason for starting any small scruples on my side,' You may rely on me as a witness. 
Sir Percival looked at me sharply, as if he was about to say something. But at the same moment, Madame Fosco attracted his attention by rising from her chair. She had caught her husband's eye and had evidently received her orders to leave the room. You needn't go, said Sir Percival. Madame Fosco looked for her orders again, got them again, said she would prefer leaving us to our business, and resolutely walked out. The Count lit a cigarette, went back to the flowers in the window, and puffed little jets of smoke at the leaves in a state of the deepest anxiety about killing the insects. Meanwhile, Sir Percival unlocked a cupboard beneath one of the bookcases and produced from it a piece of parchment folded longwise, many times over. He placed it on the table, opened the last fold only, and kept his hand on the rest. The last fold displayed a strip of blank parchment with little wafers stuck on it at certain places. Every line of the writing was hidden in the part which he still held folded up under his hand. Laura and I looked at each other. Her face was pale, but it showed no indecision and no fear. Sir Percival dipped a pen in ink and handed it to his wife. Sign your name there, he said, pointing to the place. You and Fosco are to sign afterwards, Miss Halcombe, opposite those two wafers. Come here, Fosco. Witnessing a signature is not to be done by mooning out of the window and smoking into the flowers. The Count threw away his cigarette and joined us at our table, with his hands carelessly thrust into the scarlet belt of his blouse, and his eyes steadily fixed on Sir Percival's face. Laura, who was on the other side of her husband with the pen in her hand, looked at him too. He stood between them, holding the folded parchment down firmly on the table, and glancing across at me, as I sat opposite to him, with such a sinister mixture of suspicion and embarrassment on his face that he looked more like a prisoner at the bar than a gentleman in his own house. Sign there, he repeated, turning suddenly on Laura and pointing once more to the place on the parchment. What is it I am to sign? she asked quietly. I have no time to explain, he answered. The dog cart is at the door and I must go directly. Besides, if I had time, you wouldn't understand it. It is purely a formal document, full of legal technicalities and all that sort of thing. Come, come, sign your name and let us have done as soon as possible. I ought surely to know what I am signing, Sir Percival, before I write my name. Nonsense! What have women to do with business? I tell you again, you can't understand it. At any rate, let me try to understand it. Whenever Mr. Gilmore had any business for me to do, he always explained it first, and I always understood him. I dare say he did. He was your servant and was obliged to explain. I am your husband and am not obliged. How much longer do you mean to keep me here? I tell you again, there is no time for reading anything. The dog cart is at waiting at the door. Once for all, will you sign or will you not? She still had the pen in her hand, but she made no approach to signing her name with it. If my signature pledges me to anything, she said, surely I have some claim to know what it is that that pledge is. He lifted up the parchment and struck it angrily on the table. Speak out, he said. You were always famous for telling the truth. Never mind Miss Halcombe, never mind Fosco. Say in plain terms, you distrust me. The Count took one of his hands out of his belt and laid it on Sir Percival's shoulder. 
Sir Percival shook it off irritably. The Count put it on again, with unruffled composure. "'Control your unfortunate temper, Percival,' he said. "'Lady Glyde is right.' "'Right?' cried Sir Percival. "'A wife right in distrusting her husband?' "'It is unjust and cruel to accuse me of distrusting you,' said Laura. "'Ask Marian if I am not justified in wanting to know what this writing requires of me before I sign it.' "'I won't have any appeals made to Miss Halcombe,' retorted Sir Percival. "'Miss Halcombe has nothing to do with the matter.' "'I had not spoken hitherto, and I would much rather not have spoken now. "'But the expression of distress in Laura's face when she turned it towards me— and the insolent injustice of her husband's conduct left me no other alternative than to give my opinion, for her sake, as soon as I was asked for it. "'Excuse me, Sir Percival,' I said, "'but as one of the witnesses to the signature I venture to think that I have something to do with the matter. Laura's objection seems to me a perfectly fair one, and speaking for myself only, I cannot assume the responsibility of witnessing her signature—' "'unless she first understands what the writing is which you wish her to sign.' "'A cool declaration upon my soul,' cried Sir Percival. "'The next time you invite yourself to a man's house, Miss Halcombe, "'I recommend you not to repay his hospitality "'by taking his wife's side against him in a matter that doesn't concern you.' "'I started to my feet as suddenly as if he had struck me. "'If I had been a man, I would have knocked him down on the threshold of his own door "'and have left his house, never on any earthly consideration, to enter it again. "'But I was only a woman, and I loved his wife so dearly. "'Thank God that faithful love helped me, and I sat down again without saying a word. "'She knew what I had suffered, and what I had suppressed.' She ran around to me with the tears streaming from her eyes. Oh, Marion, she whispered softly, if my mother had been alive, she could have done no more for me. Come back and sign, cried Sir Percival from the other side of the table. Shall I? she asked in my ear. I will if you tell me. No, I answered. The right and the truth are with you. Sign nothing unless you have read it first. "'Come back and sign,' he reiterated in his loudest and angriest tones. The Count, who had watched Laura and me with close and silent attention, interposed for the second time. "'Percival,' he said, "'I remember that I am in the presence of ladies. Be good enough, if you please, to remember it too.' Sir Percival turned on him speechless with passion. The Count's firm hand slowly tightened its grasp on his shoulder, and the Count's steady voice quietly repeated, "'Be good enough, if you please, to remember it too.' They both looked at each other. Sir Percival slowly drew his shoulder from under the Count's hand, slowly turned his face away from the Count's eyes, doggedly looked down at the parchment on the table, and then spoke with the sullen submission of a tamed animal, rather than the becoming resignation of a convinced man. "'I don't want to offend anybody,' he said, "'but my wife's obstinacy is enough to try the patient of a saint. I have told her that this is merely a formal document, and what more can she want?' You may say what you please, but it is no part of a woman's duty to set her husband at defiance. Once more, Lady Glyde, 
and for the last time, will you sign or will you not? Laura returned to his side of the table and took up the pen again. I will sign with pleasure, she said, if you will only treat me as a responsible being. I care little what sacrifice is required of me if it will affect no one else and lead to no ill results. Who talked of a sacrifice being required of you? He broke in with a half-suppressed return to his former violence. I only meant she resumed, that I would refuse no concession which I could honorably make. If I have a scruple about signing my name to an engagement of which I know nothing, why should you visit it on me so severely? It is rather hard, I think, to treat Count Fosco's scruples so much more indulgently than you have treated mine. This unfortunate yet most natural reference to the Count's extraordinary power over her husband, indirect as it was, set Sir Percival's smouldering temper on fire again in an instant. Scruples, he repeated. Your scruples? It is rather late in the day for you to be scrupulous. I should have thought you'd gotten over all weaknesses of that sort when you made a virtue of necessity by marrying me. The instant he spoke those words, Laura threw down the pen, looked at him with an expression in her eyes which, throughout all my experience of her, I had never seen in them before, and turned her back on him in dread silence. This strong expression of the most open and the most bitter contempt was so entirely unlike herself, so utterly out of her character, that it silenced us all. There was something hidden beyond a doubt under the mere surface brutality of the words which her husband had just addressed to her. There was some lurking insult beneath them, of which I was wholly ignorant, but which had left the mark of its profanation so plainly on her face that even a stranger might have seen it. The Count, who was no stranger, saw it as distinctly as I did. When I left my chair to join Laura, I heard him whisper under his breath to Sir Percival, You idiot! Laura walked before me to the door as I advanced, and at the same time her husband spoke to her once more. You positively refuse, then, to give me your signature? He said in the altered tone of a man who was conscious that he had let his own license of language seriously injure him. After what you have just said to me, she replied firmly. I refuse my signature until I have read every line in that parchment from the first word to the last. Come away, Marion. We have remained here long enough. One moment, interposed the Count before Sir Percival could speak again. One moment, Lady Glyde. I implore you. Laura would have left the room without noticing him, but I stopped her. Don't make an enemy of the Count, I whispered. Whatever you do, don't make an enemy of the Count. She yielded to me. I closed the door again and we stood near it, waiting. Sir Percival sat down at the table with his elbow on the folded parchment and his head resting on his clenched fist. The Count stood between us, master of the dreadful position in which we were placed, as he was master of everything else. Lady Glyde, he said with a gentleness which seemed to address itself to our forlorn situation instead of to ourselves. 
pray pardon me if I venture to offer one suggestion, and pray believe that I speak out of my profound respect and my friendly regard for the mistress of the house. He turned sharply towards Sir Percival. Is it absolutely necessary, he asked, that this thing here under your elbow should be signed today? It is necessary to my plans and wishes, returned the other sulkily, but that consideration, as you may have noticed, has no influence with Lady Glyde. Answer my plain question plainly. Can the business of the signature be put off till tomorrow, yes or no? Yes, if you will have it so. Then what are you wasting your time for here? Let the signature wait till tomorrow. Let it wait till you come back. Sir Percival looked up with a frown and an oath. You are taking a tone with me that I don't like, he said, a tone I won't bear from any man. I'm advising you for your good, returned the Count with a smile of quiet contempt. Give yourself time. Give Lady Glyde time. Have you forgotten that your dog cart is waiting at the door? My tone surprises you? Huh? I dare say it does. It is the tone of a man who can keep his temper. How many doses of good advice have I given you in my time? More than you can count. Have I ever been wrong? I defy you to quote me an instance of it. Go, take your drive. The matter of the signature can wait till tomorrow. Let it wait, and renew it when you come back. Sir Percival hesitated and looked at his watch. His anxiety about the secret journey which he was to take that day, revived by the Count's words, was now evidently disputing possession of his mind with his anxiety to obtain Laura's signature. He considered for a little while, and then got up from his chair. It is easy to argue me down, he said, when I have no time to answer you. I will take your advice, Fosco, not because I want it, or believe it, but because I can't stop here any longer. He paused and looked round darkly at his wife. If you don't give me your signature when I come back tomorrow... The rest was lost in the noise of his opening the bookcase cupboard again, and locking up the parchment once more. He took his hat and gloves off the table and made for the door. Laura and I drew back to let him pass. Remember, tomorrow, he said to his wife and went out. We waited to give him time to cross the hall and drive away. The Count approached us while we were standing near the door. You have just seen Percival at his worst, Miss Halcombe, he said. As his old friend, I am sorry for him and ashamed of him. As his old friend, I promise you that he shall not break out tomorrow in the same disgraceful manner in which he has broken out today. Laura had taken my arm while he was speaking, and she pressed it significantly when he had done. It would have been a hard trial to any woman to stand by and see the office of apologist for her husband's misconduct, quietly assumed by his male friend in her own house. And it was a trial to her. I thanked the Count civilly, and let her out. Yes, I thanked him, for I felt already, with a sense of inexpressible helplessness and humiliation, that it was either his interest, or his caprice, to make sure of my continuing to reside at Blackwater Park. And I knew, after Sir Percival's conduct to me, that without the support of the Count's influence, 
I could not hope to remain there. His influence, the influence of all others that I dreaded most, was actually the one tie which now held me to Laura in the hour of her utmost need. We heard the wheels of the dog cart crashing on the gravel of the drive as we came into the hall. Sir Percival had started on his journey. "'Where is he going to, Marion?' Laura whispered. "'Every fresh thing he does seems to terrify me about the future. Have you any suspicions?' After what she had undergone that morning, I was unwilling to tell her my suspicions. "'How should I know his secrets?' I said evasively. "'I wonder if the housekeeper knows.' she persisted. Certainly not, I replied. She must be quite as ignorant as we are. Laura shook her head doubtfully. Did you not hear from the housekeeper that there was a report of Anne Catherick having been seen in this neighborhood? Don't you think he may have gone away to look for her? I would rather compose myself, Laura, by not thinking about it at all. And after what has happened, you had better follow my example. Come into my room and rest and quiet yourself a little. We sat down together close to the window and let the fragrant summer air breathe over our faces. I am ashamed to look at you, Marion, she said, after what you submitted to downstairs for my sake. Oh, my own love, I am almost heartbroken when I think of it. But I will try to make it up for you. I will indeed. Hush, hush, I replied. Don't talk so. What is the trifling mortification of my pride compared to the dreadful sacrifice of your happiness? You heard what he said to me? She went on quickly and vehemently. You heard the words, but you don't know what they mean. You don't know why I threw down the pen and turned my back on him. She rose in sudden agitation and walked about the room. I have kept many things from your knowledge, Marion, for fear of distressing you and making you unhappy at the outset of our new lives. You don't know how he has used me, and yet you ought to know, for you saw how he used me today. You heard him sneer at my presuming to be scrupulous. You heard him say I had made a virtue of necessity in marrying him. She sat down again, her face flushed deeply and her hands twisted and twined together in her lap. I can't tell you about it right now, she said. I shall burst out crying if I tell you now. Later, Marian, when I am more sure of myself. My poor head aches, darling, aches, aches, aches. Where is your smelling bottle? Let me talk to you about yourself. I wish I had given him my signature for your sake. Shall I give it to him tomorrow? I would rather compromise myself than compromise you. After your taking my part against him, he will lay all the blame on you if I refuse again. What shall we do? Oh, for a friend to help us and advise us. A friend we could really trust. She sighed bitterly. I saw in her face that she was thinking of Hartwright. I saw it the more plainly because her last words set me thinking of him too. In six months only from her marriage we wanted the faithful service he had offered to us in his farewell words. How little I once thought that we should ever want it at all. We must do what we can to help ourselves, I said. Let us try to talk it over calmly, Laura. Let us do all in our power to decide for the best. Putting what she knew of her husband's embarrassments and what I had heard of his conversation with the lawyer together, we arrived necessarily at the conclusion that the parchment in the library had been drawn up for the purpose of borrowing money, 
and that Laura's signature was absolutely necessary to fit it for the attainment of Sir Percival's object. The second question, concerning the nature of the legal contract by which the money was to be obtained, and the degree of personal responsibility to which Laura might have subjected herself if she signed it in the dark, involved considerations which lay far beyond any knowledge and experience that either of us possessed. My own convictions led me to believe that the hidden contents of the parchment concealed a transaction of the meanest and the most fraudulent kind. I had not formed this conclusion in consequence of Sir Percival's refusal to show the writing, or to explain it, for that refusal might well have proceeded from his obstinate disposition and his domineering temper alone. My sole motive for distrusting his honesty sprang from the charge which I had observed in his language and his manners at Blackwater Park, a change which convinced me that he had been acting a part throughout the whole period of his probation at Limeridge House. His elaborate delicacy, his ceremonious politeness, which had harmonized so agreeably with Mr. Gilmore's old-fashioned notions, his modesty with Laura, his candor with me, his moderation with Mr. Fairley. All these were the artifices of a mean, cunning, and brutal man, who had dropped his disguise when his practiced duplicity had gained its end, and had openly showed himself in the library on that very day. I say nothing of the grief which this discovery caused me on Laura's account, for it is not to be expressed by any words of mine. I only refer to it at all, because it decided me to oppose her signing the parchment, whatever the consequences might be, unless she was first made acquainted with the contents. Under these circumstances, the one chance for us when tomorrow came was to be provided with an objection to giving the signature which might rest on sufficiently firm commercial or legal grounds to shake Sir Percival's resolution, and to make him suspect that we two women understood the laws and obligations of business as well as himself. After some pondering, I determined to write to the only honest man within reach whom we could trust to help us discreetly in our forlorn situation— that man was Mr. Gilmore's partner, Mr. Kyle, who conducted the business now that our old friend had been obliged to withdraw from it and to leave London on account of his health. I explained to Laura that I had Mr. Gilmore's own authority for placing implicit confidence in his partner's integrity, discretion, and accurate knowledge of all his affairs, and with her full approval I sat down at once to write the letter. I began by stating opposition to Mr. Kyle exactly as it was, and then asked for his advice in return, expressed in plain, downright terms which he could comprehend without any danger of misinterpretations and mistakes. My letter was as short as I could possibly make it, and was, I hope, unencumbered by needless apologies and needless details. Just as I was about to put the address on the envelope, an obstacle was discovered by Laura, which, in the effort and preoccupation of writing, had escaped my mind altogether. "'How are we to get the answer in time?' she asked. "'Your letter will not be delivered in London before tomorrow morning, and the post will not bring the reply here till the morning after.' The only way of overcoming this difficulty was to have the answer brought to us from the lawyer's office by a special messenger. I wrote a postscript to that effect.' begging that the messenger might be dispatched with the reply by the eleven o'clock morning train, 
which would bring him to our station at 20 minutes past one, and so enable him to reach Blackwater Park by two o'clock at the latest. He was to be directed to ask for me, to answer no questions addressed to him by anyone else, and to deliver his letter into no hands but mine. In case Sir Percival should come back tomorrow before two o'clock, I said to Laura, the wisest plan for you to adopt is to be out in the grounds all morning with your book or your work, and not to appear at the house till the messenger has had time to arrive with the letter. I will wait here for him all morning, to guard against any misadventures or mistakes. By following this arrangement, I hope and believe we shall avoid being taken by surprise. Let us go down to the drawing-room now. We may excite suspicion if we remain shut up together too long. Suspicion, she repeated. Whose suspicion can we excite now that Sir Percival has left the house? Do you mean Count Fosco? Perhaps I do, Laura. You are beginning to dislike him as much as I do, Marian. No, not to dislike him. Dislike is always more or less associated with contempt. I can see nothing in the Count to despise. You are not afraid of him, are you? Perhaps I am, a little. Afraid of him after his interference in our favour today? Yes, I am more afraid of his interference than I am of Sir Percival's violence. Remember what I said to you in the library. Whatever you do, Laura, don't make an enemy of the Count. We went downstairs. Laura entered the drawing-room while I proceeded across the hall with my letter in my hand to put into the post-bag which hung against the wall opposite me. The house door was open, and as I crossed past it, I saw Count Fosco and his wife standing talking together on the steps outside with their faces turned towards me. The Countess came into the hall rather hastily, and asked if I had leisure enough for five minutes' private conversation. Feeling a little surprised by such an appeal from such a person, I put my letter into the bag and replied that I was quite at her disposal. She took my arm with an unaccustomed friendliness and familiarity, and instead of leading me into an empty room, drew me out with her into the belt of turf which surrounded the large fish-pond. As we passed the Count on the steps, he bowed and smiled, and then went at once into the house, pushing the hall door to after him, but not actually closing it. The Countess walked me gently round the fish-pond. I expected to be made the depository of some extraordinary confidence, and I was astonished to find that Madame Fosco's communication for my private ear was nothing more than a polite assurance of her sympathy for me after what had happened in the library. Her husband had told her of all that had passed and of the insolent manner in which Sir Percival had spoken to me. This information had so shocked and distressed her, on my account and on Laura's, that she had made up her mind, if anything of the sort ever happened again, to mark her sense of Sir Percival's outrageous conduct by leaving the house. The Count had approved of her idea, and she now hoped that I approved of it too. I thought this a very strange proceeding on the part of such a remarkably reserved woman as Madame Fosco, especially after the interchange of sharp speeches which had passed between us during the conversation in the boathouse on that very morning. However, it was my plain duty to meet a polite and friendly advance on the part of one of my elders with a polite and friendly reply. I answered, the Countess, accordingly, in her own tone, and then, thinking we had said all that was necessary on either side, made an attempt to get back to the house. But Madame Fosco seemed resolved not to part with me, 
and to my unspeakable amazement, resolved also to talk. Hitherto the most silent of women, she now persecuted me with fluent conventionalities on the subject of married life, on the subject of Sir Percival and Laura, on the subject of her own happiness, on the subject of the late Mr. Fairley's conduct to her in the matter of her legacy, and on half a dozen other subjects besides, until she had detained me walking round and round the fish-pond for more than half an hour, and had quite wearied me out. Whether she discovered this or not I cannot say, but she stopped as abruptly as she had begun, looking towards the house-door, resumed her icy manner in a moment— and dropped my arm of her own accord before I could think of an excuse for accomplishing my own release from her. As I pushed open the door and entered the hall, I found myself suddenly face to face with the Count again. He was just putting a letter into the post-bag. After he had dropped it in and had closed the bag, he asked me where I had left Madame Fosco. I told him, and he went out of the hall door immediately to join his wife. His manner when he spoke to me was so unusually quiet and subdued that I turned and looked after him, wondering if he were ill or out of spirits. Why my next proceeding was to go straight up to the post-bag and take out my own letter and look at it again with such a vague distrust on me, and why the looking at it for the second time instantly suggested the idea to my mind of sealing the envelope for its greater security, are mysteries which are either too deep or too shallow for me to fathom. Women, as everybody knows, constantly act on impulses which they cannot explain even to themselves, and I can only suppose that one of those impulses was hidden at the cause of my unaccountable conduct on this occasion. Whatever influences animated me, I found cause to congratulate myself on having obeyed it as soon as I prepared to seal the letter in my own room. I had originally closed the envelope in the usual way, by moistening the adhesive point and pressing it on the paper beneath. And when I now tried it with my finger, after a lapse of a full three-quarters of an hour, the envelope opened on the instant, without sticking or tearing. Perhaps I had fastened it insufficiently? Perhaps there might have been some defect in the adhesive gum? Or perhaps... No, it is quite revolting enough to feel that third conjecture stirring in my mind. I would rather not see it confronting me in plain black and white. I almost dread tomorrow. So much depends on my discretion and self-control. There are two precautions, at all events, which I am sure not to forget. I must be careful to keep up friendly appearances with the Count. And... I must be well on my guard when the messenger from the office comes here with the answer to my letter. The Second Epoch, 5. June 17th. When the dinner hour brought us together again, Count Fosco was in his usual excellent spirits. He exerted himself to interest and amuse us, as if he was determined to efface from our memories all recollection of what had passed in the library that afternoon. Lively descriptions of his adventures in travelling, amusing anecdotes of remarkable people whom he had met with abroad, quaint comparisons between the social customs of various nations, illustrated by examples drawn from men and women indiscriminately all over Europe, humorous confessions of the innocent follies of his own early life when he ruled the fashions of a second-rate Italian town 
and wrote preposterous romances on the French model for a second-rate Italian newspaper. All flowed in succession so easily and so gaily from his lips, and all addressed our various curiosities and various interests so directly and so delicately, that Laura and I listened to him with as much attention, and, inconsistent as it may seem, with as much admiration also, as Madame Fosco herself. Women can resist a man's love, a man's fame, a man's personal appearance, and a man's money, but they cannot resist a man's tongue when he knows how to talk to them. After dinner, while the favourable impression which he had produced on us was still vivid in our minds, the Count modestly withdrew to read in the library. Laura proposed to stroll in the grounds to enjoy the close of the long evening. It was necessary in common politeness to ask Madame Fosco to join us, but this time she had apparently received her orders beforehand, and she begged we would kindly excuse her. "'The Count will probably want a fresh supply of cigarettes,' she remarked by way of apology, "'and nobody can make them to his satisfaction but myself.' Her cold blue eyes almost warmed as she spoke the words. She looked actually proud of being the officiating medium through which her lord and master composed himself with tobacco smoke. Laura and I went out together alone. It was a misty, heavy evening. There was a sense of blight in the air. The flowers were drooping in the garden, and the ground was parched and dewless. The western heaven, as we saw it over the quiet trees, was of a pale yellow hue, and the sun was setting faintly in a haze. Coming rain seemed near, it would fall probably with the fall of night. "'Which way shall we go?' I asked. "'Towards the lake, Marion, if you like,' she answered. "'You seem unaccountably fond, Laura, of that dismal lake.' No, not of the lake, but of the scenery about it. The sand and heath and the fir trees are the only objects I can discover in all this large place to remind me of Limeridge. But we'll walk in some other direction if you prefer it. I have no favourite walks at Blackwater Park, my love. One is the same as another to me. Let us go to the lake. We may find it cooler in the open space than we find it here. We walked through the shadowy plantation in silence. The heaviness in the evening air oppressed us both, and when we reached the boathouse we were glad to sit down and rest inside. A white fog hung low over the lake. The dense brown line of the trees on the opposite bank appeared above it, like a dwarf forest floating in the sky. The sandy ground, shelving downward from where we sat, was lost mysteriously in the outward layers of the fog. The silence was horrible. No rustling of the leaves, no bird's note in the wood, no cry of waterfowl from the pools of the hidden lake. Even the croaking of the frogs had ceased tonight. It is very desolate and gloomy, said Laura but we can be more alone here than anywhere else. She spoke quietly, 
and looked at the wilderness of sand and mist with steady, thoughtful eyes. I could see that her mind was too much occupied to feel the dreary impressions from without, which had fastened themselves already on mine. I promised Marion to tell you the truth about my married life, instead of leaving you any longer to guess it for yourself, she began. That secret is the first I have ever had from you, love, and I am determined it shall be the last. I was silent, as you know, for your sake, and perhaps a little for my own sake as well. It is very hard for a woman to confess that the man to whom she has given her whole life is the man of all others who cares least for the gift. If you were married yourself, Marion, and especially if you were happily married, you would feel for me as no single woman can feel, however kind and true she may be. What answer could I make? I could only take her hand and look at her with my whole heart, as well as my eyes would let me. How often, she went on, I have heard you laughing over what you used to call your poverty. How often you have made me mock speeches of congratulation on my wealth. Oh, Marian, never laugh again. Thank God for your poverty. It has made you your own mistress, and has saved you from the lot that has fallen on me. A sad beginning on the lips of a young wife sad in its quiet, plain-spoken truth. The few days we had all passed together at Blackwater Park had been many enough to show me, to show anyone, what her husband had married her for. "'You shall not be distressed,' she said, "'by hearing how soon my disappointments and my trials began, "'or even by knowing what they were. "'It is bad enough to have them on my memory.' If I tell you how he received the first and last attempt at remonstrance that I ever made, you will know how he has always treated me, as well as if I had described it in so many words. It was one day at Rome, when we had ridden out together to the tomb of Cecilia Metella. The sky was calm and lovely, and the grand old ruin looked beautiful and the remembrance that a husband's love had raised it in the old time to a wife's memory made me feel more tenderly and more anxiously towards my husband than I had ever felt yet. "'Would you build such a tomb for me, Percival?' I asked him. "'You said you loved me dearly before we were married, and yet since that time I could get no farther. Marion, he was not even looking at me.' I pulled down my veil thinking it best not to let him see that the tears were in my eyes. I fancied he had not paid any attention to me, but he had. He said, Come away, and laughed to himself as he helped me onto my horse. He mounted his own horse and laughed again as we rode away. If I do build you a tomb, he said, it will be done with your own money. I wonder whether Cecilia Metella had a fortune and paid for hers. I made no reply. How could I, when I was crying behind my veil? 
Ah, you light-complexioned women are all sulky, he said. What do you want? Compliments and soft speeches? Well, I'm in a good humour this morning. Consider the compliments paid and the speeches said. Men little know when they say hard things to us how well we remember them and how much harm they do us. It would have been better for me if I'd gone on crying, but his contempt dried up my tears and hardened my heart. From that time, Marian, I never checked myself again in thinking of Walter Hartwright. I let the memory of those happy days, when we were so fond of each other in secret, come back and comfort me. What else had I to look to for consolation? If we had been together, you would have helped me to better things. I know it was wrong, darling, but tell me if I was wrong without any excuse. I was obliged to turn my face from her. Don't ask me, I said. Have I suffered as you have suffered? What right have I to decide? I used to think of him, she pursued, dropping her voice and moving closer to me. I used to think of him when Percival left me alone at night to go among the opera people. I used to fancy what I might have been if it had pleased God to bless me with poverty, and if I had been his wife. I used to see myself in my neat, cheap gown, sitting at home and waiting for him while he was earning our bread. Sitting at home and working for him, and loving him all the better because I had to work for him, seeing him come in tired and taking off his hat and coat for him, and Marion, pleasing him with little dishes at dinner that I had learned to make for his sake. Oh, I hope he is never lonely enough and sad enough to think of me and see me as I have thought of him and see him. As she said those melancholy words, all the lost tenderness returned to her voice, and all the lost beauty trembled back into her face. Her eyes rested as lovingly on the blighted, solitary, ill-omened view before us as if they saw the friendly hills of Cumberland in the dim and threatening sky. Don't speak of Walter any more. I said, as soon as I could control myself. Oh, Laura, spare us both the wretchedness of talking of him now. She roused herself and looked at me tenderly. I would rather be silent about him forever, she answered, than cause you a moment's pain. It is in your interests, I pleaded. It is for your sake that I speak. If your husband heard you... It would not surprise him if he did hear me. She made that strange reply with a weary calmness and coldness. The change in her manner when she gave the answer startled me almost as much as the answer itself. Not surprise him, I repeated. Laura, remember what you are saying. You frighten me. It is true, she said. It is what I wanted to tell you today when we were talking in your room. My only secret when I opened my heart to him at Limeridge was a harmless secret, Marian. You said so yourself. 
The name was all I kept from him. And he has discovered it. I heard her, but I could say nothing. Her last words had killed the little hope that still lived in me. It happened at Rome, she went on, as wearily calm and cold as ever. We were at a little party given to the English by some friends of Sir Percival's, Mr. and Mrs. Markland. Mrs. Markland had the reputation of sketching very beautifully, and some of the guests prevailed on her to show us her drawings. We all admired them, but something I said attracted her attention particularly to me. Surely you draw yourself, she asked. I used to draw a little once, I answered, but I have given it up. If you have once drawn, she said, you may take to it again one of these days. And if you do, I wish you would let me recommend your master. I said nothing, you know why, Marian, and tried to change the conversation. But Mrs. Markland persisted. I have had all sorts of teachers, she went on, but the best of all, the most intelligent and the most attentive, was a Mr. Hartwright. If you ever take up your drawing again, do try him as a master. He is a young man, modest and gentlemanlike. I am sure you will like him. Think of those words being spoken to me publicly, in the presence of strangers, strangers who had been invited to meet the bride and bridegroom. I did all I could to control myself. I said nothing and looked down close at the drawings. When I ventured to raise my head again, my eyes and my husband's eyes met, and I knew by his look that my face had betrayed me. We will see about Mr. Hartwright, he said, looking at me all the time, when we get back to England. I agree with you, Mrs. Markland. I think Lady Glyde is sure to like him. He laid an emphasis on the last words which made my cheeks burn and set my heart beating as if it would stifle me. Nothing more was said. We came away early. He was silent in the carriage driving back to the hotel. He helped me out and followed me upstairs as usual, but the moment we were in the drawing-room he locked the door, pushed me down into a chair, and stood over me with his hands on my shoulders. Ever since that morning when you made your audacious confession to me at Limeridge, he said, I have wanted to find out the man, and I found him in your face tonight. Your drawing-master was the man, and his name is Hartwright. You shall repent it, and he shall repent it, to the last hour of your lives. Now go to bed and dream of him if you like, with the marks of my horsewhip on his shoulders. Whenever he is angry with me now, he refers to what I acknowledge to him in your presence with a sneer or a threat. I have no power to prevent him from putting his own horrible construction on the confidence I placed in him. I have no influence to make him believe me or to keep him silent. You looked surprised today when you heard him tell me that I had made a virtue of necessity in marrying him. You will not be surprised again when you hear him repeat it the next time he is out of temper. Oh, Marion, don't, don't, you hurt me! I had caught her in my arms 
and the sting and torment of my remorse had closed them round her like a vice. Yes, my remorse. The white despair of Walter's face, when my cruel words struck him to the heart in the summer-house at Limeridge, rose before me in mute, unendurable reproach. My hand had pointed the way which led the man my sister loved, step by step, far from his country and his friends. Between those two young hearts I had stood to sunder them for ever, the one from the other. And his life and her life lay wasted before me alike in witness of the deed. I had done this, and done it for Sir Percival Glyde. For Sir Percival Glyde. I heard her speaking, and I knew by the tone of her voice that she was comforting me, I, who deserved nothing but the reproach of her silence. How long it was before I mastered the absorbing misery of my own thoughts I cannot tell. I was first conscious that she was kissing me, and then my eyes seemed to wake on a sudden to their sense of outward things, and I knew that I was looking mechanically straight before me at the prospect of the lake. It is late, I heard her whisper. It will be dark in the plantation. She shook my arm and repeated, Marion, it will be dark in the plantation. Give me a minute longer, I said. A minute to get better in. I was afraid to trust myself to look at her yet, and I kept my eyes fixed on the view. It was late. The dense brown line of trees in the sky had faded in the gathering darkness to the faint resemblance of a long wreath of smoke. The mist over the lake below had stealthily enlarged and advanced on us. The silence was as breathless as ever, but the horror of it had gone, and the solemn mystery of its stillness was all that remained. "'We are far from the house,' she whispered. "'Let us go back.' She stopped suddenly, and turned her face from me towards the entrance of the boathouse. "'Marian!' she said, trembling violently. "'Do you see nothing? Look!' "'Where? Down there, below us!' She pointed. My eyes followed her hand, and I saw it too. A living figure was moving over the waste of heath in the distance. It crossed our range of view from the boathouse, and passed darkly along the outer edge of the mist. It stopped far off in front of us, waited, and passed on, moving slowly, with the white cloud of mist behind it and above it, slowly, slowly, till it glided by the edge of the boathouse, and we saw it no more. We were both unnerved by what had passed between us that evening, some minutes elapsed before Laura would venture into the plantation, and before I could make up my mind to lead her back to the house. "'Was it a man or a woman?' she asked in a whisper, as we moved at last into the dark dampness of the outer air. "'I am not certain. Which do you think? It looked like a woman. I was afraid it was a man in a long cloak. It may be a man.' 
In this dim light it is not possible to be certain. Wait, Marion, I'm frightened. I don't see the path. Suppose the figure should follow us. Not at all likely, Laura. There is really nothing to be alarmed about. The shores of the lake are not far from the village, and they are free to anyone to walk on by day or night. It is only wonderful we have seen no living creature there before. We were now in the plantation. It was very dark, so dark that we found some difficulty in keeping the path. I gave Laura my arm, and we walked as fast as we could on our way back. Before we were halfway through, she stopped and forced me to stop with her. She was listening. Hush, she whispered. I hear something behind us. Dead leaves, I said to cheer her, or a twig blown off the trees. It is summertime, Marion, and there is not a breath of wind. Listen. I heard the sound, too, a sound like a light footstep following us. No matter who it is or what it is, I said, let us walk on. In another minute, if there is anything to alarm us, we shall be near enough to the house to be heard. We went on quickly, so quickly that Laura was breathless by the time we were nearly through the plantation and within sight of the lighted windows. I waited a moment to give her breathing time. Just as we were about to proceed, she stopped me again and signed to me with her hand to listen once more. We both heard distinctly a long, heavy sigh behind us in the black depths of the trees. Who's there? I called out. There was no answer. Who's there? I repeated. An instant of silence followed, and then we heard the light fall of the footsteps again, fainter and fainter, sinking away into the darkness, sinking, 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 till they were lost in the silence. We hurried out from the trees to the open lawn beyond, crossed it rapidly, and without another word passing between us, reached the house. In the light of the hall lamp, Laura looked at me with white cheeks and startled eyes. I'm half dead with fear, she said. Who could it have been? We will try to guess tomorrow, I replied. In the meantime, say nothing to anyone of what we have heard and seen. Why not? Because silence is safe, and we have need of safety in this house. I sent Laura upstairs immediately, waited a minute to take off my hat and put my hair smooth, and then went at once to make my first investigations in the library, on pretense of searching for a book. There sat the Count, filling out the largest easy chair in the house, smoking and reading calmly, with his feet on an ottoman, his cravat across his knees, and his shirt-collar wide open. And there sat Madame Fosco, like a quiet child, on a stool by his side making cigarettes. Neither husband nor wife could by any possibility have been out late that evening, and have just got back to the house in a hurry. I felt that my object in visiting the library was answered the moment I set eyes on them. Count Fosco rose in polite confusion, and tied his cravat on when I entered the room. "'Pray don't let me disturb you,' I said. "'I have only come here to get a book.' 
All unfortunate men of my size suffer from the heat, said the Count, refreshing himself gravely with a large green fan. I wish I could change places with my excellent wife. She is as cool at this moment as a fish in the pond outside. The Countess allowed herself to thaw under the influence of her husband's quaint comparison. I am never warm, Miss Halcombe, she remarked, with the modest air of a woman who was confessing to one of her own merits. Have you and Lady Glyde been out this evening? asked the Count, while I was taking a book from the shelves to preserve appearances. Yes, we went out to get a little air. May I ask in what direction? In the direction of the lake, as far as the boathouse. Aha! As far as the boathouse? Under other circumstances I might have resented his curiosity, but tonight I hailed it as another proof that neither he nor his wife were connected with the mysterious appearance at the lake. No more adventures, I suppose, this evening? he went on. No more discoveries like your discovery of the wounded dog? He fixed his unfathomable grey eyes on me, with that cold, clear, irresistible glitter in them which always forces me to look at him, and always makes me uneasy while I do look. An unutterable suspicion that his mind is prying into mine overcomes me at these times, and it overcame me now. No, I said shortly, no adventures, no discoveries. I tried to look away from him and leave the room. Strange as it seems, I hardly think I should have succeeded in the attempt if Madame Fosco had not helped me by causing him to move and look away first. Count, you are keeping Miss Halcombe standing, she said. The moment he turned round to get me a chair, I seized my opportunity, thanked him, made my excuses, and slipped out. An hour later, when Laura's maid happened to be in her mistress's room, I took occasion to refer to the closeness of the night, with a view to ascertaining next how the servants had been passing their time. Have you been suffering much from the heat downstairs? I asked. No, miss, said the girl. We have not felt it to speak of. You've been out in the woods then, I suppose. Some of us thought of going, miss. But Cook said she should take her chair into the cool courtyard outside the kitchen door, and on second thoughts all the rest of us took our chairs out there too. The housekeeper was now the only person who remained to be accounted for. Is Mrs. Mitchelson gone to bed yet? I inquired. I should think not, miss, said the girl, smiling. Mrs. Mitchelson is more likely to be getting up just now than going to bed. Why, what do you mean? Has Mrs. Mitchelson been taking to her bed in the daytime? No, miss, not exactly, but the next thing to it. She's been asleep all the evening on the sofa in her own room. Putting together what I observed for myself in the library, and what I have just heard from Laura's maid, one conclusion seems inevitable. The figure we saw at the lake was not the figure of Madame Fosco, of her husband, or of any of the servants. The footsteps we heard behind us were not the footsteps of anyone belonging to the house. Who could it have been? It seems useless to inquire. I cannot even decide whether the figure was a man's or a woman's. I can only say that I think it was a woman's. 
Lest We Forget. Wilkie Collins wrote this as a serial. This appeared in magazines, so each chapter really does have to be a cliffhanger, and it makes it very hard for me to end the podcast. I keep doubling up on chapters just so you don't hate me. So, Ruth Golding, just so you don't think I have been falling down on the job, you should know that I actually did approach Ruth Golding to see if she could uh, retroactively record the chapters that she did not do in the original LibriVox recording. And because she is so good, she actually has uh, become hired. Uh, they have they have hired her to do these professionally. And I don't know which company or, or, or anything, but she does have a blog. She does have... Um, I think she has an email now on her blog and I haven't checked her in the last couple of months because I contacted her back in December but uh, I I am sure I am certain that when books that she has worked on have been released she will post it on her blog and then we can all go hunt her down she's just like you know Chip and all of the good guys who who have read for us you will hear sooner rather than later uh, one of the characters being voiced by the man who read A Christmas Carol. I think I may have mentioned that before. He's wonderful, and he does a wonderful job here as well. So it's kind of nice to start getting kind of the greatest hits from LibriVox readers. We kind of seem to be on the tails of, of some of our, our best best readers. And so there I leave you. Don't forget, you can be put into the drawing for the Elemental Journal if you donate to Craftlet in the month of April. Uh, items for sale, <laughs> funding the trip across the country, are uh, linked to on the show notes. So if you're interested in getting a journey wheel or any of my other stuff, feel free to take a gander. And uh, if you want me to stop by your neck of the woods and teach a class or do a book signing at your local yarn store. Any of these options I am more than happy to do. Uh, I can do classes. Oh, I can basically teach the class that I taught at Sock Summit or a piece thereof, the the Sock Heels workshop, where I did the um, math and kind of a fill-in-the-blanks charts for six different kinds of sock heels. Seven, if you're lucky. And that's it. I hope you have a great week. I will talk to you in April. Right now it's March 31st for me, but this will be released on April Fool's Day. No fooling. And I will talk to you soon. Take care of yourselves. Bye. Please remember to support the people who support Craftlit. Visit Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. And Knit Circus Online Magazine, offering three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can check out the latest issue at www.knitcircus.com. And what would Madame Defarge knit? A new book of knit and crochet patterns coming to you from the Craftlet family. And please visit the blogs and sites of Craftlet supporters. Those links can be found in the sidebar of the show notes. The show notes can be found at craftlet.com. Craftlet can also be accessed by its own Android and iPhone application. You can purchase it at the iPhone or iTouch application store, or you can subscribe free at iTunes. Craftlet is made possible by the generous support of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn